You are listening to Expanding Horizons, the podcast of the Unitarian Church of South Australia, a home of progressive spirituality and free religious thought and action since 1854. Views expressed in these podcasts are those of the speaker and are not intended to represent the position of the Church itself or of the worldwide Unitarian Universalist movement. For more information, visit unitariansa.org.au. reading from Ramakrishna, a 19th century Indian teacher and mystic. Thank you, Aran. No one can say with finality that God is only this or that and nothing else. God is formless. Then again, God does take forms. For the average person, God is seen in a particular form. But God is formless for the saint. That is, for the one who looks on the world as a mere dream. The average person feels that they are one entity and the world is another. Therefore, God is revealed to the average person as another person. But the saint always employs the power of reason, applying the process of not this, not that. Through this discrimination, the saint realizes through inner perception that the ego and the universe are both illusory, like a dream. Then the saint realizes the quality of God in the saint's own consciousness, but it is beyond description. Thank you, and Grant, if you could stay up there for a moment to help me with the beginning of my reflections. I'm so pleased so many people joined in. There's a strong case it should be the national anthem if indeed we need a national anthem. Uh, The verses of the song, too many to go through today, but they highlight a diverse array of historical identities in Australia from the time before European settlement onwards. Yet reassuringly and movingly, the chorus proclaims that we are united as a nation. Advance Australia Fair is usually played to a rather plodding rhythm, reminiscent to me, of the Victorian era. After the way we've handled refugee problems over the last 20 years, the lines about having boundless plains to share may sound a bit hollow. Having said that, I have heard a wonderful jazzed-up version of Australia Fair, Advanced Australia Fair with a didgeridoo introduction and an up-tempo beat, which seemed to make it more uplifting. The inspiration of You Are, I Am, We Are Australian, however, is the appeal to unity. 
Not sameness, not equality, but unity. We're not talking about a nation or a world in which everyone has the same amount of money or power. Although one could note in passing that there are enough resources in the world for everyone to be able to live comfortably, albeit simply. But as a species, we just haven't got around to distributing resources in that way. Even if we did, without a deeper solution to humanity's behavioural problems, the egotistical drive for domination and acquisition would soon send everyone's equal portions back to the old distortions of resources. In another role, I have the privilege of being able to conduct citizenship ceremonies. Usually, I or one of the speakers will reinforce to the Assembly of New Citizens that will never lose the heritage of their former home, but by coming here and taking on citizenship, they become fully part of the Australian community. In other words, it's about signing up to common values, not assimilating to every aspect of the dominant culture. Past policies of assimilation are a remnant of our colonial past. They are inherently based on disrespect, an assumption that our culture is better than yours. Undoubtedly, our multiculturalism, which has been national policy for not quite 50 years, has been one of the greatest social achievements of this nation. It has been tested at times, as some politicians and sections of the media have stirred up fear of strangers for political advantage or to sell newspapers. The fear is primal and real. I've seen research which suggests that once a baby has begun to bond with family and carers, after about nine months old, the typical baby will have an increased heart rate, in other words, anxiety, with the approach of strangers, some more than others. No doubt in parts of the world where primitive human beings were competing for food and other resources, it was an evolutionary benefit to bond closely as a tribe, beginning with kinship ties. Tribal identity, often accompanied by clothing or markings of some kind, served as a psychological protection, a morale booster, in the knowledge that tribal members would come to each other's aid in the face of threat. There's a debate among contemporary neuropsychologists as to the extent to which human beings have a genetic predisposition to such fear, compared to socially learnt tribal identification. Either way, it seems that the more one knows about a stranger, unless the stranger is objectively malevolent, the less the fear and prejudice one holds towards them. So there's a lot to be said for interfaith and intercultural interaction. Thankfully, there are enough decent people in Australian public life, community leaders, public servants, people of faith and politicians, to keep alive the wonderful notion that people from diverse cultures can live together in peace and understanding, committed to a common enterprise of maintaining a moderately fair and tolerant Australian society. Everyone should be provided with a certain minimum standard of living, everyone should be cared for, 
everyone should have a say in what's going on. The appeal of I am, you are, we are Australian is really a recognition that everyone in this land deserves equal respect, no matter their heritage. In a different context, I think Unitarians make a similar appeal to the broader community as well. By basing a community on uncontroversial principles, it's easy for anyone to join and be part of this caring, respectful community. All we ask for is people to embrace these seven principles. The inherent worth and dignity of every person, justice, equity and compassion in human relations, acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. The goal of a world community with peace, liberty and justice for all. And respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Surely all civilised and reasonable people would be comfortable with those principles. What we don't do is insist on a dogmatic creed to be recited at the point of entry into membership. Unitarians here can retain whatever identity they bring into the place, whether it be atheist, agnostic, Buddhist, Christian, Jewish, or any other religious background. In terms of the various individual understandings of the world among us present today, there are indeed many, but we are one. We accept those principles, we care for each other, and we're all on the same journey. Just recently, we were criticised in a comment on the internet. Unlike a lot of comments on the internet, I can repeat this one publicly. It's not something that would make anyone blush. Our online critic described us as, quote, unchristian. Now, like many, like many critics on the internet, our friend didn't have the courage to put his real name to the comment. Nonetheless, I mention it because it's a clear case of how labelling can be used as a means of separating people and creating the illusion that we're of different worth. The labelling of the other as being inferior in some way allows the ego a sense of superiority, which in turn is usually only needed if there's a lack of self-assurance on some level. No doubt our friend the critic is on the journey of finding meaning in life, no doubt wants to attain peace, just as we do, and we wish him well with that. Of course, the answer to such a criticism is not to engage in a theological debate, but rather to simply respond, Christians are welcome here, and so is everyone else. Having said that, I can't resist dipping my toe into the theological debate. <laughs> now, there's no doubt that there are statements attributed to Yeshua which are exclusivist. And as a general rule, the greater the distance in time between the life of Jesus and the canonical scripture about him, the greater the prevalence of text insisting on a new, uniquely correct 
religion dependent upon acceptance of Yeshua as God. On the other hand, there are propositions in Christian scripture which appear to uphold tolerance. The author of Acts of the Apostles says at chapter 10, verse 34, I perceive that God does not show partiality, but every nation that is reverent and does justice is accepted by God. And in the first letter of John, chapter 4, verse 16, the author says, Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. Now, for those of you who can grapple with or use the language of God, you can see how that makes sense. But for those of you who are not comfortable with that concept, you can translate it in your mind, can't you, to make sense of it in terms of living in love. In 1965, Pope Paul VI issued the Vatican II document entitled The Declaration on the Relation of the Church to Non-Christian Religions, which was an extrapolation from the Latin Nostra Aetate. While upholding Orthodox Christian belief is the only way to salvation, of course, it also identified the desire and search for God as a factor which united all humanity. For example, referring to other religions, the document states, the Catholic Church rejects nothing that is true and holy in these religions. She regards with sincere reverence those ways of conduct and of life, those precepts and teachings, which though differing in many aspects from the ones she holds and sets forth, nonetheless often reflect a ray of that truth which enlightens all. So in that respect, at least, the Pope was saying that we are one, even if we are many. And I refer to this because although some forms of religion are exclusivist, we can commend any and every effort to find common ground between one tribe and another. Many mystics throughout history have comprehended humanity to be essentially one. Apart from Ramakrishna, whom we heard from earlier in the reading today, there's another beautiful example here from a Sufi poet, Mahmud Shabustari, from The Secret Rose Garden, which he wrote about 700 years ago. I and you focus light like decorative holes cut in a lampshade. But there is only one light. I and you throw a thin veil between heaven and earth. Lift the veil and all creeds and theology disappear. When I and you vanish, how can I tell whether I am in a mosque, a synagogue, a church or an observatory? These kinds of experiences are not just shared by mystics. During the week I read an interview with an African-American woman who had what they call a near-death experience. This is Tomiko Smith's description of what she experienced. 
Everything was its own God. The love I felt there was radiating from me, back at me. It was peace and consciousness. Every blade of grass was communicating with me, talking to me. The fish that jumped out of the waterfall and swim in the lake were communicating with me. I could understand them when it happened, but now that I'm back in my body, I have no memory of what I was being told. I was just at a complete peace and love. I was truly liberated and free of my humanity. I was something other than a woman or a person. My body was gone. And the interviewer says, it sounds spiritual to Miko. No, she replied. It was not in any way that type of feeling. It was reality. Had no type of spiritual or mythical feel. It felt just as real as walking into Walmart or going to get my hair done. It was simply my reality at that moment. It was real. It was reality. And there was no need for a God. Do you understand? Once you leave Earth for reality, there's no need for a God. There is nothing to fear or work towards anymore. You have made it to reality. Now, for those of us with a scientific rather than mystical outlook, consider this. Scientists in 200 years from now will probably raise their eyebrows in disbelief at how limited was our knowledge of ourselves and our world. Just take one example from medical science. At the beginning of the 1840s, the mortality rate of women giving birth in Vienna was 12%. So 12 out of 100 died. And that was probably much better than many other cities in Europe at the time. Through scientific observation and process, one of the gynaecologists discovered that infection rates dropped if doctors washed their hands before going from one examination to another. There were no gloves in those days. Within a few years, mortality rates dropped from 12% to 1% in the one particular hospital where pelvic examinations were only done by sanitised hands. So we look back at that period, that is less than 200 years ago, aghast at the standard of ignorance. So what wonders may we yet discover about our unconscious minds and how they're networked? and how irrational fears of strangers may be overcome. I conclude with a comment from an American astrophysicist and agnostic, Neil deGrasse Tyson. The very molecules that make up your body, the atoms that construct the molecules, are traceable to the crucibles that were once the centres of high-mass stars that exploded their chemically rich guts into the galaxy, enriching pristine gas clouds with the chemistry of life. So that we are all connected to each other biologically, to the Earth chemically, and to the rest of the universe atomically. That's kind of cool. That makes me smile, and I actually feel quite large at the end of that. It's not that we are better than the universe. We are part of the universe. 
We are in the universe and the universe is in us. In other words, we are many, but we are one. Well, I want to thank Brendan and Grant for the music today. Thank you, Aran, for a very thoughtfully considered reading from that Ramakrishna quote and to people who have helped with the flowers and the tea and greeting people and so on. I want to leave you with some final words, a benediction, if you will, adapted from A New Year's Blessing by a woman called Joyce Rupp. And I heard it uh, as I was visiting one of the Calvary aged care homes during the week. I've just adapted the first line for us. We pray for you in your time in this Unitarian family that you find meaning, purpose and vitality in what you do daily. That you make choices and decisions that reflect your truest self. That you look in the mirror at least once a day and smile in happy amazement. That you keep your sense of humour when things don't go the way you want. That you find adventure in each new day and marvel at the wonders of creation that constantly present themselves to you. That you are attentive to the health of your body, mind and spirit. That you draw on your inner strength and fortitude when you are in need. That you carry peace within yourself, allowing it to slip into the hearts of others so our planet becomes a place where violence, division and war are no more. We hope you've enjoyed this Expanding Horizons podcast. These podcasts are the intellectual property of the presenter. They can be used only with the express permission and appropriate acknowledgement of the presenter. This permission can be obtained by emailing admin at unitariansa.org.au. Please feel free to leave a comment or visit us on Facebook or Twitter by searching SA Unitarians or by visiting our website at unitariansa.org.au.